0: you have a Bible with you, open up to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John. We're in John 15, continuing our verse-by-verse study, and we're going to do a part two of what we started last week. If you're taking notes this morning, maybe you see it there in your outline, it's the joy of abiding. The joy of abiding, John chapter 15, I'm going to read verses 9 through 11, and we're going to dive right into our time together this morning. Here are the words of Christ as recorded by John the Apostle. He writes this. This, Jesus speaking again, says in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning in worship to sing about how you're a good, good father. Thank you for the opportunity to sing about grace, grace, God's grace. Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word today and to read from the lips of Jesus about this joy that he desires to give to us that we would walk in this joy every moment of every day as we're learning what it means to truly abide in Christ. Bless this time together, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Joy, it's a name, it's a song, joy to the world, it's a feeling, it's a state of mind, it's a short but powerful word. Perhaps you can think of a moment of joy that you've had in your life. Maybe it was the day that you graduated from high school or the day that you graduated from college. Maybe it was the day that your favorite team won the championship game. Maybe it was the most joyful day of your life was the day you got married. I hope that's what you should say to the candies and all you gentlemen out there. You should say, that's the most joyful day of my life, the day I got married, right? How about joy being on the day that if you are married or you've had a chance to have a baby, the birth of your first child. Or maybe if you're here and you're a little older, the most joy you've had was the day that your last child left home. I don't know. (laughs) How about the day that God saved your soul? That's a day of joy. So, I have a question for you this morning. Is joy an emotion? Is it to be defined by our circumstances or is joy a state of mind? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines joy as the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune. But I'm going to ask the question this morning, is that enough in that definition? I think we need a theological perspective on the word joy. A theological dictionary describes joy more more convincingly as a state of mind and an orientation of the heart. It is a settled state of contentment, confidence, and hope. John Piper, Zero Zen on Joy, which is unique to the Christians, he says, quote, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit, as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. We see from this definition that joy is an emotion, but it's much more than an emotion. It is also a perspective of looking to Christ in all things. Another theologian gives his definition quote, Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life, the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right, and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. Again, I'm giving you a little more of a hefty definition of this word, joy. Here we learn that joy is a settled contentment. It's a confidence in God's sovereignty. It's looking at how to be thankful and how to praise God in every circumstance in your life. R.A. Torrey said, quote, there is more joy in Jesus in 24 hours than there is in the world in 365 days. I have tried them both. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, "A genuine revival without joy in the Lord is as impossible as a spring without flowers or the dawn without light." Spurgeon also said, quote, "The grace of joy is contagious. Holy joy will oil the wheels of your life's machinery. Holy joy Will strengthen you for your daily labor. Holy joy will beautify you and give you an influence over the lives of others. Well, I think all of these definitions and all of these quotes on joy that we're hearing this morning drive us to a closer look at the biblical definition of joy. Joy is a feeling or an emotion, but it's also a confident abiding in the vine, which is exactly what Jesus lays out for us here in John 15. Joy is knowing that all of our life derives from the vine. It's the confidence that as long as we are drawing life from the vine, then we are also going to experience Christ's joy. We have already learned that Jesus is the true vine and that his Father is the vine dresser. We've been told that the branches that do not bear fruit will be cut off and thrown into the fire. And we have seen that God will prune every branch that does not bear fruit, or excuse me, that does bear fruit, so that we may bear even more fruit. Remember John 15:5, the main verse maybe of this passage, Jesus says, "'I am the vine, you are the branches, he that remains in me, and I in him shall bear much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing.'" This morning, I want us to look at part two of this message, The Joy of Abiding. And we're asking and then answering four questions about the joy of abiding in Christ. I'll give you a running start from last week's message. We'll review just quickly the first three questions, and then we'll spend our time on the fourth question. But the first question we asked last week was this, how much does the Father love the Son? And if you look at verse nine again, we read already that Jesus says, as the Father has loved me. So we asked the question last week, well, how much is that? How much does the Father love the Son? And as a reminder, we're in the middle of what's known as the upper room discourse, where Jesus spends his last few hours on earth before being arrested in the garden and crucified on the cross, giving some very important teaching to his disciples. And he's been talking about abiding in the vine. And one of the things that Jesus addresses in verse nine is how much the Father loves the Son. Now, just by way of review, we talked about that this is a love that was before time. We talked about this is a love, the father between the father and the son that gives him all things. We talked about how this is a love that the father has revealed all things to his son. It is a love that was proclaimed at his baptism It was a love that was overshadowing him at the transfiguration. It was a love that was pointing to the cross. This love is best defined as intra-Trinitarian love. This is a love that's hard for us to grasp. It's not some kind of puppy love. It's not just some infatuation. It's not just a superficial emotion that blows over you. No, this is intra-Trinitarian love. This is a perfect love. This is an eternal love. This is a love that was before time. This is a love that never stops loving. This was a love that is never selfish. This is a love that points all creation to God. This love is beyond imagination. This love has no equal. This love is unlike any love that you could ever fathom. I'm talking about intra-Trinitarian Love, the love that existed between the Father and His Son. This love will blow your mind. This love is pure. This love is extravagant. This love is holy. This love is complete. This love needs no alteration. This love never fails. This love is a triune love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, how much does the father love the son? He loves him perfectly and eternally. The second question was simply this. How much does the son love you? How much does the son love you? Verse nine, Jesus goes on to say, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. And as has already been said this morning, that blows our mind. We've got to stop and think, whoa, how in the world can the father love the son that much, and then how in the world can the son love me in the same way? How much does the son love me? We said last week that he loves you in the same way that God loved him. He loved you enough to die for you. Ephesians 5.2, we're told to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. How much does he love you? He loves you enough to challenge you, John thirteen thirty four. Jesus says, a new commandment, I give you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also are to love one another. So he loves you just like the Father loves him, and his love transforms you, and it changes how you love one another because you learn to love others just like God loved the Son and like the Son has loved you. His love for you is enough to make you a conqueror. Enough to make you a conqueror. We looked at Romans 8:37 last week that says, "No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, it's his love for you that pulls you out of your sin, and that places you on a rock, and that gives you the ability to fight sin. When you see the love that the Father has for the Son which is the same love that the Son has for you. How much does the Son love you? He loves you to the very end. John chapter 13, verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This means that Jesus loves you to perfection. He loves you to completion. He loves you all the way through. He will never leave you. He will never abandon you. He will never deny you access into his presence. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. How much does the Father love the Son? With a perfect, never-ending love. How much does the Son love you? He loves you with that same love. A perfect, never-ending love. And so what are we to do about it? Is there anything that we got to do in order to stay in that safe place? The answer is yes and no. In one sense, there's nothing you got to do because you're saved by grace alone. And while you were yet a sinner and I was yet a sinner, he loved us and he set his affections upon us and he regenerated us and he caused us to be born again and there's nothing you can do about it. And yet at the same time, we read at the end of verse 9, where Jesus does give us this command. He says at the end of verse 9, abide in my love. It's a command. It's in the imperative. It's something you got to do. And you say, well, do I have to do anything to be saved? And the answer is no, in the sense of you're saved by sovereign grace extended to all who will repent and believe. But repentance and belief, we believe, according to the teaching of the Bible, is a gift of God. For it's by grace that we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the idea of having faith or believing, even repenting, which is turning from your sin and turning to Christ in your heart and in your mind, which later will be displayed in your actions, there's nothing you can do to be saved. But as a Christian, as someone who is a branch, as someone who is bearing fruit, as someone who has been called to abide, that's exactly what he's called us to do. Our third question was, how do you abide? in Christ's love, because we've been commanded to, in verse 9. So how do we do it? Verse 10 tells us, Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. So how are we to remain? How are we to abide in Christ's love? The answer is by remaining true to Christ. To abide means to remain, it means you stay right there under the waterfall of God's grace. It means that you're not, and you're not moving to the left. It means that you are not looking for a new gig. You are not looking for love outside of Christ. You're looking for your love inside of Christ. And so how do you abide in Christ's love? It's by remaining true to Christ, but it's also by keeping Christ's commandments. I mean, there's just no way around this. You can't say, no, you can abide without keeping. That's not what the text says. He says, I want you to abide in my love, and the way that you do that is by keeping my commandments. That's exactly what Jesus says in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love, And do you want to know how to abide in Christ? Again, it's simply by keeping His commandments. It's by obeying. It's by walking in the Spirit and not walking in the flesh. It's by taking His Word every day and saying, God, I just pray You would conform my thinking and my acting and my walking and my every part of me to Your Word. I want to keep the Word of God. I want to walk close with Christ. And the good news is, at the end of verse 10, we have an example. We have somebody that we can look to who's gone before us, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Notice that Jesus does not say, do as I say. He says, do as I do. And we ended last week with talking about how I had a coach that was in cross country and track who didn't just say, Tyson, run another lap. He said, Tyson, I'll run that lap with you. And I was so thankful for a coach like that who didn't just sit on the sidelines and say, Do as I say. But he said, Do as I do. And he would run with us around and around that track over and over again. And that inspired me. And to a much greater degree, an infinitely greater degree, Jesus is saying, I've kept the commandments. I've fulfilled the law. I've done everything the Father's ever asked me to do. You can do it too with my help, with my power, and with my love, with the love I have for you, it inspires us to walk in obedience to Christ. And that brings us to our fourth question this morning that I want to ask you, how is your joy made full? Verse 11, Jesus says, these things, everything I've just reviewed with you, these things I have spoken to you, why? that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Why is it that Jesus has spoken these things to his disciples? Why is it that Jesus tells us that we're to keep his commandments? Is it because we're just supposed to do what we're supposed to do, and that's it? Is it because I said so? Is it to be done out of some bullied obedience? The answer is no, that's not the motive that he gives for us. He says, I've told you all this, and he has a very compelling reason why it is that he wants us to obey in verse 10, and the reason that he wants us to obey in verse 10 is for the answer that he gives in verse 11. It's so that my joy may be in you and that your joy would be made full, which means this, if you're not obeying, you don't have joy. If you're not abiding, you don't have joy. If you're holding on to your sin instead of holding on to God's word, you don't have joy. And you'll never find it outside of Christ. The whole essence of abiding has to be in the joy that God provides. The essence of abiding is not duty, it's delight. It is not of an external conformity. It is an internal transformation driven by joy. We should not be driven to obey out of grit, but out of gladness. We are not driven to obey out of fear, but out of faith, Obey out of willpower, but out of an intense desire for that that would bring us the most joy listen to me this morning, obeying God brings you the most joy. It does. Every moment of every day, obeying God is what brings you joy. Husbands, you want joy in your marriage? Love your wives like Christ loved the church. Treasure them every moment of the day, even when you don't understand them. Children, you want joy in your life? Obey your parents. You hear me, children? (laughs) Obey your parents, and God will give you much joy. Listen to me. The joy of the Lord that is our strength comes from obeying Christ's commandments. This kind of joy brings greater joy than alcohol, it gives greater joy than sex. It gives greater joy than family or a successful job or a beautiful home. It gives greater joy than summer break or than your birthday or even than Christmas. This is the joy of the Lord. And Jesus tells us in verse 11, that's what he wants for you. For every member of his church, he doesn't want to have like the happy, happy, joy, joy people over here and then the disgruntled Christians over here are saying, man, we just got to do this we're Christians for crying out loud. Some people happy, happy. Some people duty, duty. No, no, they're both right, right? They're both right. So we're going to bring them together because that's what this passage does. Obey, abide, you get joy. Without obeying and without abiding, you don't have joy. Not to the level that God wants to give to you. He wants to make our joy full. And I'm seeing some half-full cups out there this morning, I'm not going to say who they are, but I saw you when you came in, your, your cup was only half full, all right? He wants to fill every single Christian with this kind of joy. In fact, your next blank says this, Jesus wants his joy in you. Jesus is not a killjoy, he is full of joy. Jesus is not dull, he is delightful. Jesus is not uninspiring, he is remarkable. Jesus is not mournful, he is cheerful. Jesus is not gloomy, he is eternally glad. And I wanna give you three passages which demonstrate God's desire that his joy would be in you. The first one, your next blank says, Jesus prays that you would have joy. Jesus prays that you would have joy. Look at John 17, 13. Jesus says, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. As you know, this is the high priestly prayer of Christ. He's praying that God would save his own out of the world, and he's not just praying that he would save them. He's praying that they would be filled with joy. Jesus wants joyful Christians. He wants every Christian to be filled up with his joy, and having the joy of the Lord is not flimsy, and it's not flighty, and it's not fake. It's a deep, abiding presence of the person of Christ and the Word of God dwelling in you. This is what Jesus is praying for. Don't make one of Jesus' prayers go unanswered. It won't, first of all. And second, it's going to work in your life as you come into a deeper understanding of the love that God has for you. This is what Jesus is praying for. Yes, he's praying for your holiness. Yes, he's praying for your protection. Yes, he's praying for your endurance. But he's also praying for your joy. Remember, it's the joy of the Lord, which is your strength. Another passage that shows us this if you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus shows us his own motive in his obedience. You want to know how Jesus obeyed and how he did it? What was it that he was thinking as he was obeying? Hebrews 12, verse 2, as you turn there, just be reminded, sometimes life is tough and we face numerous trials in our life, but we have to see the joy that is set before us as the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We understand in this context we have just been told of all the heroes of the faith of Hebrews chapter 11. All of the godly men and women of the faith who, who, who dedicated their lives to God. And then in Hebrews 12 verse 1, it says that we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. It says that we have to lay aside every weight. It says that we've got to run the race with endurance. And now in Hebrews 12 2, it is saying, but how do you do that? I mean, how do you be a hero of the faith? How do you run the race of endurance? How does that look like in your life? How do you endure suffering and shame? How do you endure persecution and pain? How do you endure difficulties and disappointments? And the answer is, look to Christ. Look to Jesus for your answer and for your example. Jesus here, we're told, it was for the joy set before him. Jesus knew the pain and the heartache, and yet he trusted in his Father, and he obeyed his Father's plan. And according to Hebrews 12, too, it was all for the joy set before him. He was looking to what was on the other side, and that's what brings us joy. Not the joy of the world, But the joy of heaven. Not the joy of physical comfort, but the joy of spiritual blessings. Not the joy of security on earth, but the joy of security in heaven. And I can tell you this you won't find any of that true joy outside of God. You won't find any true joy outside of God's revealed word. You won't find joy in your pride. You won't find joy in your anger. You won't find joy in your immorality. The things of this world don't bring joy. Not even Disneyland brings joy. Like this. Sorry, Heather. Love you. So we have a big Disneyland friend over there. But you know what? The joy comes through the cross. It comes through Jesus Christ. Your joy must be found in God. Fact number three there, turn to Psalm 1611. It says your joy is to be found in God's presence it's to be found in God's presence psalm 16:11 you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God makes known to us the path of life. That doesn't necessarily mean the decisions that we make on a daily basis, like should I choose this school or that school or this job or that job or this place to live or that place to live. The path of life referred to in Psalm 1611 is more about the path of salvation, It's more about the path of obedience. It's more about the path of righteousness as opposed to the path of rebellion. It's more about the path of wisdom versus the path of foolishness. It's more about the path that leads to joy instead of the path that leads to guilt. And this path is found in God's word. And this path leads us into God's presence. And it's in the presence of God where there is no fear. And it's in the presence of God where there is no hate. And it's in the presence of God where there is no anger and it's in the presence of God where there is no evil and it's in the presence of God where there is no wickedness and in the presence of God there is no sin. That's why it's so joyful. You're in the presence of God and God reveals this path to us through his word and by his spirit and he leads us to his presence and in his presence what do you find? We find joy. And not just a little joy but a lot of joy. This word Psalm 1611 says, the fullness of joy, which means to drink your fill. It means full to the point of overflowing. It means to be satisfied. It's like one of my boys that comes in after playing football in the yard on a hot fall day, and they're like, water, water, and they run over and grab a cup and fill it up and just, and water just like pouring all down, and they're like, ah and then they run right back out into the yard and play another quarter of football, right? It's that overflowing where you just have to have it, and it just comes down upon you. This word fullness means to be satisfied, our, our, and not only are you satisfied in that moment, but the end of Psalm 1611 says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So you get the joy in the moment, and you get God's pleasures forevermore. God's joy never runs out His joy never runs dry, it never expires, it never goes sour, it never rots. And as we're walking in obedience, there's a closer sense of the presence of God. And it's when you're in the presence of God through worship and obedience and sacrifice and devotion and in a love for Him that you find fullness of joy. God is my portion, He is my bounty, He is my reward, He is my prize. He is my treasure. God is full of delight. Jesus is full of joy. And the Holy Spirit is my oil of gladness. And Jesus has spoken all of these things to us in John 15 so that we might bear fruit. And God prunes us so that we can bear more fruit. And as we abide in the vine, and as we abide, also abide in this kind of joy this divine joy, this extravagant joy, this overflowing joy, which fills us every moment of every day. And so, Jesus wants His joy in you, but your next blank says, Jesus also wants your joy in Him. He wants His joy in you, and then He says, and He wants your joy to be made full. He wants your joy in Him. Now, I just want to remind you that pursuing joy in God is a good thing. Just like pursuing purity is a good thing. Just like pursuing holiness is a good thing. We need to be pursuing our joy in God. And what I'm afraid has happened to the Christian community is that we only see joy as an emotion, so we sit back and we wait for it to come to us. And I'm telling you this morning, there's nothing wrong with pursuing your joy in God. Just like you pursue everything else in Him, you pursue your joy in God. That means you fight for it, and you place yourself in His presence so that you can receive it to a greater degree as you think through how your day is going. In his book, Desiring God, John Piper says that pursuing your joy in God is a philosophy of life built on these five convictions. Number one, I've adapted them slightly, but here's what he says in the book. Number one, pursuing your joy in God glorifies Him. It's built on these convictions. Number one, longing to be happy in God is good. Now, I just want to say that a distinction needs to be made between being happy and being joyful. Being happy is often thought of as an emotion only whereas joy is thought of as also being a state of mind. Being happy is often associated with circumstances, while joy can be obtained even in dismal circumstances. Being happy is many times thought of as a worldly pursuit, while most parents would prefer to emphasize that you need to be grateful. But there is a happiness that we should find in God. The longing to be happy in God is a good thing. God made us to be emotional creatures that we should not hold back. And I would say that we even need to encourage our happiness to be anchored and to be rooted in God. The desire to be happy is not a sin. Pleasure is not a sin. Pursuing joy is not a sin. In fact, it's commanded. I believe that the Bible affirms this as it affirms creation. It is the way that God made us. God made us to be happy. (laughs) We got one happy soul in here. He's made us to be happy, let me clarify, in Him. Don't look for it anywhere else. If you want to be happy, be happy in him. Proverbs 15, 13 says, a glad heart makes a cheerful face, but sorrow, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is crushed. So there's a pointer in Proverbs 15:13 that we should have a glad heart. We are to have a glad heart, but it can only be made truly glad in God. That glad heart in God leads to a cheerful face it leads to an uplifting of your countenance. It leads to a smile and to a nod. Let's share this joy with one another. I mean, nobody wants to be around grumpy people, right? Have you ever been like, oh, I like the grumpies, wherever the grumpies are. I wanna ha- Do you have any grumpies at your church? I want to go sit with them. <laughs> Anybody like that this morning? No, you want to be around happy people, Right? You want to be around people who have a joy that's contagious. And unfortunately, what happens is we got a lot of Christians who say, you know what, I'm just waiting on God. You know, I don't like it very much, but I'm waiting on Him. It's like, well, you seem kind of angry, brother. You need to calm down, right? I mean, why can't we say, you know what, I can't wait to see what God's going to do in this situation for His glory. You know, don't be the kind of Christian who says, well, I'm just sticking it out in my faith. I don't like it very much. I'm just sticking it out. I'm all alone. Nobody else does this but me. It's like, I don't want to be around that person, right? I want to be around someone who says, you know what? I'm going to be faithful even if it costs me everything because my love for Christ is so great and it's so grand. I don't need anybody's approval. I just want to be with God. Don't you want to be with that person? Don't be like the kind of Christian who just is down and out all the time. Rather, be like the Christian who says, you know what, I'm trusting in God. Don't, don't be like that Christian who would say, I'm just bearing up under trials. In fact, I think I've been buried by my trials. Like, no, you know what? God is growing me in my endurance right now. And he's growing me in my character right now. And he's giving me hope right now. And he will not put me to shame right now. And God's love is being poured into my heart right now. And right now at this moment, he's filling me with his Holy Spirit and with his power and with his strength. I'm so glad to be a Christian. Don't you want to be a joyful Christian? It's commanded of us. All that to say that longing to be happy is a good thing. Another philosophy about pursuing your joy in God is this, number two, seek your happiness in that which will truly satisfy. We should never try to deny or resist our longing to be happy as though it were a bad impulse. Instead, we should seek to intensify this longing and nourish it with whatever will provide the deepest and the most enduring satisfaction. You know what this is saying? Don't squelch it. Pursue it in God. C.S. Lewis preached. He talked a lot about this. Preached a sermon called The Weight of Glory. And in this sermon, he states the following, quote, The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we might follow Christ." and nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. You know what he's saying? Yes, self-denial is in the Bible. There's some Christian here this morning be like, what about self-denial? Like, well, yeah, you should deny yourself, but why should you deny yourself? It's so that you can find greater joy in God. You deny self- so that you can be filled with his presence. This is what Jesus taught in Luke 9, 23, when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. We're affirming that. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Why? Why do we want to do that? Very next verse, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The reason you want to deny yourself is so that you can find your life in God. And when you find your life in God, he fills you with his joy. And so in this passage, the appeal to deny yourself and to take up your cross is found in the motive of saving your life. And if you want to save your life, then you have to be willing to lose it. And if you lose your life by repenting and trusting in Christ, then you will save your life. That's a good motive. C.S. Lewis continues, quote, if there lurks in the mo- excuse me, if there lurks in the most modern minds, the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I would submit this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. If indeed we consider the unblushing promises of reward. And the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. So, he's saying the problem is your desire is not strong enough because you're satisfied with lesser things. And what we want to do as Christians is be satisfied with the greatest satisfaction and the greatest joy, which has nothing to do with this earth, and it has nothing to do with earthly relationships, and it has nothing to do with your earthly desires. It has everything to do with your relationship with God, to be in his presence, to be considered a child of God, to walk with him every moment of every day. This is what Jesus teaches in his parables about Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. It's exactly what we're talking about. This man saw this field with an incredible treasure, which is a picture of salvation, and then he went and he said, You know what? I'm gonna get rid of everything else in my life. I don't care about anything else in my life. I gotta have this treasure. I want this treasure. It's for my joy. No one's making me do it. I got to have I got to have more of that. The very next parable, again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Here we are walking through life looking for pearls, especially women. And they like to string them on a necklace and hang them around their neck. I'm just kidding with you a little bit, but that's what we're looking for, right? We want a pearl. You want something in life that just satisfies you a little bit. And so the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see the parables like I, I see the gospel, I see Christ, I see salvation. It's the great pearl of incredible value, and I'll sell everything else for that pearl because that pearl brings me joy and fulfillment and contentment and life. Nothing else matters. This is the joy that God calls us to. Look at number three. Your deepest happiness is found only in God. We don't rejoice in the things of this world. We rejoice in God. That's Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord, always. And again, I say, rejoice. Our joy is not to be found in things of this world or the circumstances of our lives. Our joy is to ultimately be found in the intimacy of the relationship that we have with God. And we're commanded to pursue that joy in Him. Listen, I I get it. Sometimes you have a rough week. Sometimes you might feel depressed. Sometimes you lose something that was precious to you a certain relationship, a, a comforting experience. Let me encourage you this morning to put your hope in God. Rejoice in the Lord always, on the good days and on the bad days, early in the morning and late at night, when your bank account is full and when you're sitting on empty, when everybody loves you and when nobody loves, Wants you. It's through Christ that your relationship with God is unchanging. It's unrelenting. It's unvarying. It's uninterrupted. It's unabated. The relationship with God being the source of your joy is exactly what John writes about in 1 John 3 and 4. He talks about that we need to have fellowship with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ, and he says, I'm writing about these things so that your joy may be complete. It's having fellowship with the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. That completes you. You don't have to have a great time with your family over the holidays. Some of you will, and some of you won't. Holidays bring all kinds of different feelings and emotions, and I hope it goes well for you, that you could be the light of Christ in your family. But I'm just saying you can't look at that for ultimate joy because it could be depressing at times. But you can look to Christ. You can look to that pearl of great value. You can look to that treasure buried in the field. When you fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the secret to having your joy be made complete. And you know what I love about it? It doesn't cost any money. You don't have to have a new car. You don't have to have a new house. You don't have to have other people do certain things for you because your joy is not built on them and what they do for you and what they don't do for you because you're just sitting here in the middle of chaos, in the middle of craziness, and you're you're just smiling. Your countenance is lifted. You're like, I'm a child of God. He saved my soul. I deserve hell, and he's given me heaven and he's changed my thinking, and he's changed my actions, and every part of every day is now filled with joy. You know what he wants us to do with that? Number four, our happiness and God grows as we share it with others. That's what he wants you to do. Once you have that joy, once you're filled with the Spirit, once you're walking in obedience, once you're walking close to Christ, he wants you to share it with others, and it's as you share it with others, it just gets more. You know, you're like, man, that person makes me so sick. They're happy all the time, You know, and they keep getting happier because they're sharing it with everybody. This is what happened to Paul and Silas when it was about midnight in Acts 16, 25. They're in stocks. They're in prison. They're chained up. They maybe haven't eaten in days. Who knows? And then all of a sudden at midnight they're singing and they're praying and they're singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Just always a reminder, people were probably looking at them like, how can you guys be singing amazing grace right now? You're in prison. Right? We just love God. we love His word. We've been changed by Christ. When, when you're filled with joy and you're sharing that with others, it makes an impact on what they perceive that your life is really about. Last one, number five, the pursuit of pleasure in God is necessary to worship God. The pursuit of pleasure in God is necessary to worship God. To the extent that we abandon our own pleasure, we abandon our worship of God. Our greatest pleasure as a Christ follower is in finding joy in God. When we are doing that, He is glorified in us, and we are satisfied in Him. And when we're not doing that, His glory is not on display, and we're not being truly satisfied, but we only have a cheap imitation of the real thing. We are called to find our joy in God. That's the essence of worship. To worship God in a grumpy spirit with a grumpy attitude is an oxymoron. When you come into his presence, you come with singing, and you come with sacrifice, and you come with joy, and you're like, I'm so happy to be here. And then God continues to fill you with that joy. It's delighting yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. So many Christians today focus on that second part. They're just like, oh, he's going to give me the desires of my heart. Well, yeah, but the greatest desire of your heart is him and his joy and his salvation and and the sanctification of your soul. And as you're delighting in him, he begins to put his pleasures in you and his joy in you. Christianity is a religion of do's and don'ts. Do find your joy in delighting in God. Don't find your joy anywhere else. Do keep abiding, don't be severed from the vine. Do pursue your happiness in God, don't be deceived to try to find it somewhere else. You know, when I'm really hungry and we go to a nice restaurant, Sometimes I like to order just a nice big steak, just a nice big huge sirloin, let's say 16 ounces, loaded baked potato, maybe a little Caesar salad, a little bit of cheese, garlic, breadsticks. For you, maybe you're thinking about a big quiche right now. I don't know. For me, it's steak, all right? And I think about eating a big meal like that, and you're just so satisfied, you're so full, you're stuffed. Then the waitress comes out with that, you know, that tray with all the desserts on it, and I'm like, get those cream puffs out of my face. (laughs) Because I'm just so satisfied with what I just ate. Do You understand, when you're satisfied with God, you don't need the cream puffs of this world. You're so full of Him. (laughs) You're so full of His joy. You're so full, you're just feasting on His word, and you don't need all the other trinkets at the Christian bookstore. No offense, but you don't need that stuff to make you happy, right? You just want Christ. You want all of his glory. And so may the joy of the Lord become your motive and your strength. May you learn to abide in Christ as he also abides in you, because there's nothing like the joy of abiding in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these reminders this morning. We need it every day We want to be joyful Christians. You command us to be. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Jesus gave his life so that we could have the fullness of joy in us. And Lord, help us never to separate that from abiding in you, remaining true to you, keeping your commandments. We see the connection now that all of it works together for your glory and our good. Help us as a church to be a joyful church, even in a hard week like this one. Help us to be a joyful church that would spread that joy with others. Help us to see that it is an emotion and it is also a state of mind set on Christ, loving Christ, following Christ, filled with the joy that only Christ can give. May we sing about that at this moment and live that out the rest of this day and this week for your glory, I pray in Jesus name. Amen.